This morning we are in Psalm 78, and I have found this to be one of my favorite psalms, um, just because it's, it's basically a history lesson. It's, uh, how many of you enjoyed history when you were in school? One person. Wow, only one person. Krista Kersey. I did not expect only one person. Well, today, guess what? You are going to get a history lesson. So even if you didn't like it, uh, well, today, guess what? You're stuck with it. <laughs> uh, I like history. I really enjoy investigating uh, just the context of certain events that lead to where we are now. I think it's grossly a grossly misunderstood subject that it's just about uh, cold, dead facts about cold, dead people. And that we're just learning about these names and events and, and little uh, interesting tidbits about people that we don't know. And, and we're just learning how they did this one thing and that's what changed the course of this certain event and whatever. And I think that, that if you look at it that way, I can see how you would be bored with it. Uh, but I think to me, history comes more alive when you realize that this one event, while it may define how we remember them in terms of a history class that they had a lot more going on in their life than just this one little thing that they added, and now it's, they have a paragraph in your history textbook. That these were real people. They had lives, and they had dreams, and they had hopes, and they had desires, they had families, they had good days, they had bad days. People in your history textbooks, Abraham Lincoln, they had bad hair days, and they had good hair days. <laughs> And they had days when they were really up and encouraged. And they had days when they were really depressed. They were people that were just like you and they were just like me. They were real. See, sometimes I think we have like, I, don't, I know I can do this at times. You can just read and it's just, it's not really a person. It's just a name that did this certain thing. And it's just a fact. But history, I think, comes more alive when you realize that there were living, breathing legacies behind the names that you're reading about. Such is what can make reading the history of your Bibles come alive, too. You know, you can read these people's names, and it, number one, it's a really weird name, so you can't even pronounce it. But then you also have to realize that it's not just a name, it's a person who lived they were real people in your Bibles that, that, <clears throat> that actually had good days, bad days, hopes, dreams, and those are the real people that are behind all the names and dates and facts that we can get lost in when we are just studying history. And I say that because Psalm 78, for 72 verses, the psalmist Asaph, he basically relays a history lesson to the people of Israel. And if you read it, if you read all 72 verses, which we're not going to read all 72 this morning, but if you read them all, it is essentially just covering Israel's history from the time when they, were, uh, when they made the exodus out of Egypt to whenever Asaph wrote this. He brought them up to that point, remembering all of those events. And I think what we have here in this history lesson is just a lesson of faith. Asaph is trying to inspire and encourage the faith of these people, and he does so interestingly. How does he do it? He reminds them of all their failures. He goes through, and as we're going to see, he goes through and he is unafraid to share these sort of terrible, uh, sordid, the morbid, the failures that defined Israel's history. And he's not afraid to share them. 
And he does so for a specific reason. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. He's announcing what he's about to do. He's announcing the fact that he's about to give this lesson. And he's basically saying those verses, you could sum them up. Listen up. I'm going to uh, open, I will, he says, utter dark sayings. I'm going to utter some sometimes dark pasts. In, in our nation's history, he is saying, and why? Well, look at verse 4. He says, we will not hide them, hide them, meaning those dark things, from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." You can see he's clarifying the reason for the history. Why are we going to walk through these dark things? Why are we going to walk through and be reminded of all these failures in our nation's history? Why are we going to walk through all of these really dark and depressing times? Because he wants to, as he says in verse 7, that this generation might set their hope in God. And they won't repeat the errors of their forefathers. He says that, but keep his commandments, and look at verse 8, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was steadfast with God. So he's going to review their history, both good and their bad, and this, he would say, it would serve to, number one, caution them against repetition. It would caution them, warn them against repeating all of these same events in the past. Their forefathers, as you know, if you're just slightly familiar with the Old Testament, if you just read some of the history books, you know how greatly the people of Israel rebelled against God over and over again. And here he is carrying this lesson to this current generation, the generation that's coming up in Asaph's day. And he says, I want you to remember these things. Why? So that you set your hope in God. It's that old familiar saying that those who, are, uh, who can't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. That's clarifying, that's the importance of history. You're going to be doomed to make the same mistakes. And also he wants to just bolster their faith. He wants to give this generation, this generation that uh, is not familiar perhaps with what their forefathers went through, he wants to bolster their faith by remembering how God intervened at every point. And, and I, I, I think about that even for our own current. Like, it baffles me that there's people who were not alive at 9-11. And that was only like, you know, 20 years ago. Not even 20 years ago. And there's people that were born after that. And they have no memory of what that day means. And we, we're getting that now, I think, with... With, with World War II and such like that. And it's not just a national American thing, but I think it's a very important thing to remember those certain events. 
that we keep passing on what that meant. Why? Well, Asaph is going to get into something similar to that. Because he's not afraid. I like how he says in verse 4 that he's not going to hide these things from their children. He's not going to sort of make them appear better. He's not going to make them appear as if they weren't as bad as they really were. He's not going to hide these dark things, as he says. But we're going to show them to them. Why? So they can see just how good their God was. So they can remember and understand, as he says, God's wonderful works that he hath done. This is the burden of Asaph. He's adamant about sharing this history And he's adamant that they would learn from this history and that they would set their hope in God. So look quickly. I'm going to look at a couple things. Because he brings them through different movements in God's sort of uh, intervening in Israel's life. If you look at verse 14, here I think he, he highlights God's provision for Israel really clearly. Look at what he says. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud. And all the night with a light of fire, he clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. You can see exactly what Asaph is trying to do here. He's reminding them of how exactly and precisely and abundantly God met their needs. He provided for them. Yes, they were wandering in the wilderness, but what does he say? He led them. He gave them drink. He met their needs. Every single need that these people, the people in Israel's past faced, every need that they came up to, Jesus, God himself, met. And he didn't just meet it, he went above and beyond it. Because when they were lost, he led them, as it says. Or when they were thirsty, he gave them drink. Or jump over to verse 23. Because when they were hungry, he gave them meat. But I love these verses. Look at verse 23. Though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven... And had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. I love that phrase. He sent them meat to the full. They weren't just getting by. They weren't eating uh, rations out in the wilderness. They were eating to the full. And then look at verse 29. He says the same thing. Verse 29 says, so they did eat and were, f- were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were filled. They were satisfied. Their needs were met. God's provision was precisely and above and beyond what they needed. He always met their needs. They weren't just getting by. God's provision was precisely, exactly what they needed. His provision for them was inexhaustible, as it is for us as well. But notice quickly, because in verse 12, in verse 13, and several others, which we'll highlight really quickly, he also highlights God's protection. So God provides for them, and look at verse 12, where he protects them. It says, Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zon. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters to stand as an heap. Here, you're reminded of that wonderful, incredible scene when Israel is exiting Egypt 
And they are confronted with the Red Sea. And what happens? A miracle. God divides the waters and they walk through as on dry ground. He protects his people because he brings those waters back and it swallows up the Egyptians. And it's not because they did anything. It's because God fought for his people. He defended them and protected them. And he provided a way for them to escape. He was on their side. Notice verse 43. I'm going to read down through verse 52 because here he goes through all of the ten command or um, all of the ten plagues, excuse me, and he shows uh, Asaph shows how fiercely God defends His people. Look at verse 43, how he had wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zone, and had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. He sent diverse sorts of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their increase unto the caterpillar and their labor unto the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave, them, uh, gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble by sending evil angels among them. He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence, and smote all of the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham, but made his own people to go forth like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. What a shepherd he was to his people. You notice, I love how in that section of verses, you notice who the subject of them all? Back to English class, grammar. It's God himself. He sent, he brought, he destroyed, he gave, he cast. It was God that is doing all of these incredible works on behalf of his people. He's protecting them. He's defending them. He is fighting for them. He is on their side. And I love how he is doing this for his people. And then it says in verse 52, despite all of that fierceness and wrath and fury that he's pouring out on Israel's enemies, how is he leading Israel? It says he's guiding them like his own sheep, like a flock. This is the God that we have. Who can tend and deal out with intense fury and wrath and justice. And who can also lead with the tender loving care of a shepherd. And such is what he does for his people. He protects them as one who is a shepherd. Protecting from all enemies that would assail them. And I love this protection. Because look at verse 52 again. And he made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to this mountain which his right hand had purchased. This is what God is doing for his people. He's leading them, and he's not just leading them around aimlessly. He's leading them, as he says, as it says there, to safety, to God's sanctuary. He's leading them to his desired end, which leads to a place of peace and abundance and, and tranquility and sanctuary, as he says here. God was intervening. 
protecting his people, as he says here. And he never ceased to intervene on their behalf. And if we have a lesson that just has that, it would appear as if we had nothing to complain about. It would appear as if Israel had it all made. How in the world could they be so messed up? I don't know. (laughs) Because I want you to look. Go back to verse 17. Because we have to look here. This is perhaps the greatest lesson out of this whole chapter is this. God's patience. Look at verse 17. Right after verse 16, which we read earlier, talking about how God is providing for every want in the wilderness. Look at what it says. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the most high in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. What an incredible turn of events. They have just seen this provision given to them by God's hand, by God's doing, by God's working. And what do they do? They question it. They're dubious of God's goodness. They are questioning God's provision and his protection. If you look at Israel's history, which one day I hope to examine the long and storied history of the people of Israel in the wilderness, is a fascinating uh, lesson, and the, the, the bulk of it is what? People try God's patience, and what do we learn? He is abundantly patient. <laughs> God is abundantly patient with people who are constantly balking and being stubborn and testing his patience, testing the limits of them. Because they would learn and they would not learn. They would forget what they learned. They would forget. Look at that word in verse 11. And it says, and forget his works. They forgot. They forgot what he did. Look at verse 32. For all this they sinned still and believed not his wondrous works. They believed not the same word as it says in verse 22 because they believed not in God and they trusted not in his salvation. They forgot. They didn't remember. They didn't remember all the times that God was good to them. They didn't remember all the things that God had given them. And such is why in verse 20, excuse me, in verse 20, well, 19 and 20, you notice. All of those sentences are questions. They had all the evidence right in front of them of God's provision and protection. And what do they do? They question it. Can God really do this? Can God really make this happen? Is God really true? Is this really right? And then it says, after that questioning, they believed not. And even more than that, look, go back to verse 29 again, because I want to highlight this. It says, they did eat and they were well filled, it says. 
for he gave them their own desire. And they were not estranged from their lust. They still didn't leave their lust, it says. But while, get this, while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still. And believed not his wondrous works. While his provision was in their mouths. <laughs> they were grumbling. Even as God had given them exactly what they needed. God had given them precisely something to meet their needs. To satisfy their hunger. And they're grumbling about it. They're complaining about it. They believed not. They sinned still. They were fickle and forgetful people. It kind of reminds me of us a little bit. <laughs> Look at verse 56. After all of that protection, <coughs> all of that provision, it says, Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to an anger with their high places and, and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. They forgot. They forgot God's abundant supply. And this is, I think, one of the gravest lessons. When you forget God's goodness, it leads to ingratitude, which leads to disbelief. You hear these stories of, quote, Christians uh, sort of de-confessing or removing themselves from the Christian faith. And what does it always come back to, I think? Always comes back to forgetfulness of what they've been given in the scriptures, in the gospel itself. And they start to question, did God really say? Is this really true? Can God really do this? It always comes back to a question, to a forgetfulness. To a misremembering of who God is and how faithful He is. And this is Asaph's burden. Because why did Israel need to remember this? Why did they need to be reminded of this? Because look at verse 68. Despite all of that erratic behavior, despite all of that faithlessness, despite all of that fickleness and that forgetfulness, look at God's reaction. After all of that, verse 68 he chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces and like the earth, which he had established forever. And he chose David also, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. You notice that? God's faithfulness doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on His integrity of His heart. He does it, why? Because of the integrity of His heart. Because of His own righteousness. Because of His own goodness. This is not a lesson for Israel to go and live as they please because God could, would be good to them. It's a reminder that even if you mess up, God is good to you out of the integrity of his heart. 
He led this people. He chose this people. He provided a sanctuary. He provided them a king and David. And he brought them out of all of that wilderness into here, as he says, into this sanctuary. Because God was faithful. To me, I am just baffled by that lesson. How in the world? If I was God, that's a daring saying. If I was God, there is no way I would be that patient. You know, I thought, you're going to laugh at this. I thought having kids would help me get more patient. (laughs) That was funny, right? (laughs) It reveals just how incredibly impatient I am. How incredibly self-centered I am. This is not a marriage class, but I'll just throw this in there too. Because I always think it's funny you hear these people that, how are we going to fix our marriage? Let's have a kid. (laughs) That probably won't work. It just reveals more. (laughs) I'm so glad. My God, my Father in heaven is not a father like me. He's patient with his children. Providing them safety and provision and protection. All while what? They're grumbling and complaining and moaning and forgetting and tempting and provoking him. God is patient. God is good. God is faithful. Israel constantly forgot. God always remembers. See, this is the wonderful lesson, I think, of this chapter in Psalms. It's a, it's a testimony to God's boundless patience and abundant faithfulness. And it's ongoing. You could see yourself in this. You can see your family in this. You can see our nation in this. That our constant wandering is a forgetfulness of who God is. And yet, despite all of that, God remembers us. This is, I think, the incredible message of Asaph's psalm. It's a message in which we don't have to be scared. We don't have to be afraid of sharing these harsh realities of our past. Why? It's because we know that God has brought us out of it. The mess of your past, I think, is the best platform for the gospel to be shared. And here, he's sharing the mess of his nation's past. Why? In order to show this new generation just how good they have, just how good their God is. I think for me, I see myself in here and I see what? I see a father who loves me way better than I can ever love anyone in this world. I'm so grateful that my constant uh, forgetfulness isn't reciprocated by wrath, it's reciprocated by grace. And God remembers me. He remembers you. He remembers every sinner. And what is his desire? To lead all sinners into his sanctuary. 
and to his place of refuge, and to his place of peace, and to his place of stillness, and to his place of rest. And this is what he's done for everyone. This is what he's done for you. Let us pray.